Hello, and welcome to the Harrisburg Brethren in Christ sermon series. Yasas, Kalos Irthates do Harrisburg Adelfuse Cristo, where our vision is to be a thriving, diverse urban church, sharing Christ's love and serving the needs of our local and global communities. Here's an example of what you'll hear. If God was powerful enough to raise Jesus from the dead, he's powerful enough to break these chains of addiction on me. He's powerful enough to break the generational curses in my family. He is powerful enough to stop the senseless violence in Harrisburg. I'm telling you this morning the incredible truth that Jesus Christ is crazy about you. Helping each other to experience God's love, God's power, God's healing. Helping to change one another's lives. Church can continue to be a place, or church can continue to become a people, my people. Let's pray. And now, here's this week's sermon. I hope that it speaks to your heart. The first miracle that Jesus performed, and um, in the, that's from the Gospel of John and the Gospel of Luke. Luke gives us a picture into the beginning of Jesus' ministry when Jesus uh, stood up to read in the synagogue in Nazareth where he had been brought up, and he was handed the scroll of Isaiah. Unrolling the scroll, he found Isaiah 61 and read these words, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Today we live in a world where there are more people living in slavery than at any other time in history, in spite of the fact that slavery is illegal in every country in the world. Our church's vision is to be a thriving, diverse urban church, sharing Christ's love and serving the needs of our local and global communities. As we follow Jesus in caring for others, we want to position ourselves to learn about the injustices that are occurring today throughout the world and to join the faithful abolitionists in helping to free the oppressed. In just a moment, we'll be sharing a video from International Justice Mission, a ministry that is working to end slavery, currently in 10 countries. The video is intended for adults, and the narration may be too sensitive for children, so we wanted to let you know in case there are any children remaining in the sanctuary at this point in the service. At this time, uh, we'll have the video. You're working 14, 18 hour days with very little sleep, no freedom, dignity is taken away from them. And, and that's something nobody should have to endure. We had a number of years ago, two of the wonder laborers escaped from a facility. And they were tracked down by the owners of the facility and, and brought back. And as a punishment for what they had done, their hands were chopped off. We would go to the government officers and we'd say, sir, there is a bonded labor case. And almost always the response was, there is no bonded labor in my area. What are you talking? Yeah, yeah, I'm afraid. Richira, there's a girl who's very afraid. Almost unable to walk. This is Kumar. 
He was abandoned by his mother, and his father was suddenly killed. Orphaned and alone, he was accountable for his parents' debts. And at just seven years old, he was forced into slavery. Kumar remembers a day where he was so ill he couldn't get out of bed. Immediately, his owner came looking for him. Kumar was trapped by debt and a slave owner who beat him continuously. He, like so many, had no remaining hope for a way out. IJM discovered the horrific conditions in the brick factory where Kumar and others were being forced to work against their will. <laughs> And, based on their undercover video evidence, local government authorities and police came alongside IJM to conduct a rescue operation. The more and more we are doing these rescues, people are getting aware that people are being abused. There is bonded labor, there is trafficking. Also, the law is going to take its course as well as perpetrators go behind. When the team arrived in the morning and entered the brick factory, 15 men, women, and children were rescued and given their freedom back. Then, they were each given a certificate to prove that they no longer owe any debts to their former owner. was for Kumar. After being rescued, IJM placed Kumar in their aftercare program to heal. You'd ask him a question anytime, no matter what, and he would say, the one thing I want to do sir, is I want to study. He was clear about that. And then they enrolled him in school for the first time. Today, he is studying to be a social worker to help those still suffering like he did. And what we do at IJM is we go look for that lost sheep, that girl that's being abused, that widow who's been run out of her home. And we will search for her until we find her. That's how our Father has loved us. That's how we are called to love others. Not to search for them until 
we've satisfied ourselves, not to search for them until it gets really hard, but to go after them until we find them, to be relentless in our love. We all know the Good Samaritan story. Two other people walked past this man who was hurt and wounded. There was one person who stopped, picked him up, and paid for his care. It didn't take too much. It just required him to stop and actually pay attention that somebody is suffering, pay attention that somebody is wounded. Now, Jesus talked to us about this parable because he wants us to be like that Good Samaritan. You may be removed miles and miles away from where these things are happening, from where the crime of human trafficking or slavery is happening. But you're also very close to the heart of Jesus. He wants to extend his kingdom on this earth. And he doesn't just come from heaven and do it himself. He uses people like you and I. He uses us as his instruments. He uses our abilities to extend his kingdom. Do you want to be someone who stopped and decided no? This is, this is wrong. It cannot happen on my watch. It cannot happen in my time. And so the invitation is open. We'd like to spend the next couple moments in silent prayer, and then I'll close. Our hearts are broken, Lord, by the injustices in our world against men and women and children. But we know that our hearts are broken because your heart is broken. We know that you want the oppressed to be set free. We're really grateful that in our own country and many other countries, uh, we've experienced the effect of Christians in earlier generations working against all odds to bring an end to the bonds of slavery. We have people who have descended from slaves who um, understand in the depths of their being what gift that was. Just as you stirred in the hearts of people who worked toward the end of slavery here, we know that you're stirring in hearts today, God, calling people to help in ending enslavement and abuse in our world. So stir in our hearts that our commitment to righteousness and justice would grow, that we might help to bring the final end to people being enslaved, whether for the sex trade, for forced labor, for servitude, for greed, or for power. 
We do pray, Lord, for those who are working on the front lines of fighting against the evil of enslavement through international justice mission and through other ministries and organizations that work in this realm. God, we pray for an increase in the effect of their work. We pray for an increase of their resources, both the resources within them and the outward resources of workers and finances that are needed. And we pray, Lord, for the children, for the women, for the men who are victimized by people and systems of evil throughout our world. We know that they're close to your heart, Lord. May freedom and wholeness come to them as the bonds of slavery become broken. Today we have hope as we think of the 45 million who are enslaved. Lives are changed one at a time. One after another, after another. Though the wrong seems off so strong. Thank you, God, that you are the ruler yet. And thank you that you're in the business of changing lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As I continue the series in John, I'm going to read John 3, 1 through 15. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old, Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be, Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, Jesus said, and you don't understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. One night, a very important man snuck into Jesus' camp. His name was Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a member of the Sanhedrin, the 70 men who ran the religious affairs of Israel and who exercised authority over every Jew anywhere in the world. He was extremely educated and devout and, like all Pharisees, was dedicated to the understanding and practice of the Torah, the Old Testament books, focusing on God's demands. Yet Nicodemus, a man who supposedly had all the answers about how to please God, came to Jesus one night in secrecy. He immediately acknowledges Jesus as rabbi, teacher, one who has authority. We know you are from God, 
because no one could perform the miracles you are performing without him. At this point, Jesus rocks Nicodemus's world. He tells Nicodemus that no one can see the kingdom of God unless they do this strange thing called being born again. This floors Nicodemus. How, he says, I can't crawl back into my mommy's tummy again. Jesus had his attention. He tells Nicodemus then a little more about what he means. Very truly, which again is, is in the King James, verily, verily, which really means, listen up. This is really important. If you're going to enter the kingdom of God, you must be born of water and the Spirit. Now, water here obviously refers to baptism. It meant confessing one's sins, repenting, and starting again. And it's always meant that. Even for John the Baptist, it meant that. Jesus is saying this to one of the most religiously devout men in Israel and in the world. And he is startling Nicodemus by saying, you know, all your understanding of religion, you have to start from scratch. You have to start again. Why? Jesus was saying to Nicodemus, keeping the law the way you and your buddies in the Sanhedrin are going about it saves absolutely no one. You need something radically new to happen to you. You must enter into a whole new way of relating to God. You must change in a way you have not conceived of. Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus' real needs, his empty heart. Something was missing, and Nicodemus knew it. Why else would he risk his status and reputation by visiting this renegade rabbi? Nicodemus must have been stunned when Jesus told him, in essence, you and your fellow Pharisees cannot earn your way to God. You cannot obey your way to God. Your religious devoutness is doing you no good from God's point of view. You're missing the point. The flesh cannot do what needs to be done. Even religious, devout flesh, trying as hard as it can, cannot create a relationship with God. Only the Spirit can create what I'm talking about. You and your pals are on the wrong track. Rules and regulations don't get done what needs to get done. Only God can save you, Nicodemus. You are not in control of your salvation. That is in control of the Spirit, blowing where He will. And then Jesus told Nicodemus he needed to be born again by water and the Spirit. And that meant to him that salvation, Nicodemus, is not dependent on your works, but on the Spirit's power. You need to be recreated. You need to be born again. And this does not happen to you by trying harder and harder to be good. A totally new life is available to you. Through the Spirit, you can become fundamentally recreated, born again, changed when the Spirit is done with you. All the other ways you try to please God are doomed to failure and will ultimately exhaust you and will cause despair. Rules won't change you. Law won't change you. Only the Spirit of God can change you. So what is being born again? The first aspect of being born again is accepting that you cannot do what needs to be done and you need a gift. And that gift is called grace. Nicodemus could not grasp this. Nothing is free. God is holy. I at least have to try to be holy to make points, right? No, Nicodemus. All you can do is receive what the Spirit is giving. 
All you can do is hold up your sails and catch the wind of the Spirit. Salvation is pure gift, Nicodemus. It is yours for the taking. Faith is accepting your accepting by acceptance by believing in me. As they held up the bronze serpent and when people looked, they were saved. He says, one day you're going to have to look at me because I'm the only thing that can save you now. One of the, you know, the, the freeness of, I find people have struggled so much with stuff that's free. Have you ever noticed that? We have trouble with grace. In a town called Paradise, California, lived a young man named John Gilbert. And when he was five years old, John was diagnosed, was diagnosed with Duchenne's muscular dystrophy. It is genetic, it is progressive, and it is cruel. He was told that it would destroy every muscle in his body and he would not live more than 10 years. Each year, John lost something. One year, he couldn't run. Another year, he couldn't walk straight. Eventually, he lost his ability to speak. John wrote that junior high, not surprisingly, was perhaps the hardest time of his life. Junior high is usually a rough time for everybody. Tony Campalo once said that the old Roman Catholic theology is right, that there really is such a thing as purgatory. It's junior high. It's a place between heaven and hell where you go to suffer. John, because of his condition and because he had to bring a trained dog to school, was tortured by his classmates. A bully used to torture him in the lunchroom. Everyone made fun of him. But there were moments in John's life. At one point, he was named the representative for everyone with his condition in the state of California. He actually got flown to Sacramento and had a, a, an evening with the governor. After that, he was invited to the National Football League, who was sponsoring a fundraising auction and dinner at which John was a guest. The players let him hold their huge Super Bowl rings, which almost extended to John's wrist. When the auction began, began one item particularly caught John's attention. It was a basketball signed by the players of the Sacramento Kings professional basketball team. Personally, I don't get that. They ruined a perfectly good basketball by putting the names of the Sacramento team on it. They're really terrible. I, if I'd have been on that, I'd have said, can I wipe these names off? John got a little carried away because when the ball was up for bids, he raised his hand. And as soon as his hand went up, John's mother flagged it down. In John's words, astronauts never felt as many G's as my wrist did that night. The bidding for the basketball rose to an astounding amount of money for an item that was not by far the most valuable treasure on the docket. Eventually, one man named a figure that shocked the room and that no one could match. The man went to the front and collected his prize. But instead of returning to his seat, the man walked across the room and placed it in the thin, small hands of a boy who had raised his hands earlier. The man placed the ball in hands that would never dribble it down a court, never throw it on a fast break, never fire it from three-point range. John writes, it took me a moment to realize what he had done. I remember hearing gasps all over the room, then thunderous applause and seeing people cry. To this day, I'm amazed. Have you ever been given a gift you could have never gotten for yourself? Have you ever sacrificed a huge amount for Has anyone ever sacrificed a huge amount for you without getting anything in return except the joy of giving and the hope of friendship? 
And the answer for every Christian in this room today is yes. Every one of us has gotten a gift we could have never gotten for ourselves. We have, been, we have received a gift that required a huge sacrifice for someone. Most of us here today are the recipients of the most expensive gift ever give, given and it was absolutely free to us. Real salvation is realizing how much we are loved, opening our hearts to such a gift, and grabbing hold of it by faith. We are saved by love, not by law. We are saved by grace, not by works. There's nothing else we can do to receive such a gift because it's already paid for in full by somebody who made a larger sacrifice. Not only does grace save us, the good news is it keeps saving us. There is and never will be a moment when I am not saved by grace or you are not saved by grace. It doesn't matter tomorrow if I turn into Billy Graham and lead a million people in a crusade to Christ, I will still be saved by grace, not by the million I led. If I die for the faith next week, I'll go to heaven based on his merits, not mine, based on his death, not mine. And if I believe anything else, I go back to Phariseeism and works and law, just like Nicodemus. Christians were never meant to obey God out of guilt or shame. Is that what the way you would raise your kids? Would you be proud if your kid said to another kid and you overheard him, you know, I really am a good kid. I'm scared to death of my father. Is that what you really would want to hear? Or I really am toeing the line because nobody shames somebody like my mom does. We obey because we are totally loved, accepted completely, grace from beginning to end in Christ. And that produces freedom and that produces joy. You know, I like what J.D. Greer wrote. He said, the kind of joy we're talking about in Jesus cannot be produced in us by simple resolutions to obey. This kind of joy comes only from being saturated in the gospel of grace. If you are not where you should be spiritually, the answer is not to simply get busier for Jesus. It's not to get more radical in your devotion to God. It's not to seek greater spiritual gifts or even learn more about the Bible. It is to make your home in God's love given to you as a gift in Jesus Christ. The gospel of grace is not just our first steps in following Christ. It will be our last step too. As Tim Keller says, the gospel is not just about the ABCs of Christianity at the beginning. It is the A to Z of Christianity from beginning to end. We never grow beyond living in grace. We only, as Peter wrote, grow deeper in grace. In other words, what got me saved keeps me saved forever. Hallelujah. I love how Greer finishes this. He says, those people who get better in terms of Christians, are those who understand that God's approval of them is not depending on their getting better. Did you hear that? God doesn't love you because you're a good little boy or girl. God doesn't love you because you have X, Y, and Z religious activity. He loves you because He loves you. He loves you because He graces you. And if we understand such grace, it will set our hearts on fire. God's love will begin to consume us. And our life will be of one of obedience, out, and that obedience will be based on love and nothing else. Shame does not change people. 
Have you noticed you cannot shame someone into loving you? You can't beat someone up. You will love me. Pow! Fear does not change people. It just makes us hide from each other. We just go into hiding and play mind games with God and ourselves and everyone else. And religious stuff piled onto a heart that is not in love with God is a waste of time, Jesus told Nicodemus. Because the, as the Pharisees proved, you can act morally without being within a country mile of God. God wants our hearts, not just proper behavior. Our main job as Christians is to abide in the love of Jesus, to wallow in the grace of Jesus, to swim in the mercy of Jesus. Because when Jesus is great, he's greater than anything else to us, it's much easier to resist temptation and to let go of lesser gods. Only love changes the heart and produces real obedience. If you are following Jesus for any other reason, it is sub-biblical and substandard. The second truth about being a born again is that at the moment we believe, we are given a new identity and just as importantly, a new nature. My spirit not only becomes a home for the Holy Spirit, my spirit was resurrected at salvation. It was changed. I, at that moment, became a new creature in Christ. I went from being a sinner to a saint. I am given a new nature immediately when I exercise faith in the only one who can save me. When you accept Jesus, the Spirit comes with Him at that point, and the Spirit resurrects our spirit up from the, its numbness, its deadness, its lostness, and He creates, instead of a heart of stone, as Ezekiel said, it turns it into a heart of flesh, and it creates a heart for God. It becomes our nature. Did you hear this? It becomes our nature to love Jesus. We are given a whole new set of desires, and we are given a whole new abilities to relate to God. Imagine if I told you that starting right now, you could have the physical abilities of LeBron James. I know some of the women out there are going, LeBron who? <laughs> what if you, would you be interested in playing a game of basketball? Or you could have the jump automatically. You could have the jump shot of Steph Curry. Would you like to play a game of horse with somebody? Or imagine if someone told you that the abilities of Leonardo da Vinci could be placed directly into your psyche. Would that excite you? Would you like to grab a paintbrush and get to moving? I'm here to tell you something greater than that has happened when Christ came into you. He recreated your spirit to be like His. He made you holy at that moment. He gave you the love you need to follow Him all the days of your life. He broke the stranglehold of sin that dominated you. He set you free. You are now not just accepted in Christ. You are given the power of Christ, the love of Christ, the holiness of Christ, the fruit of the Spirit. You are now something you were not before. That's why when Paul writes his letters to every church in the New Testament, he always starts with, to the saints at Ephesus, to the saints at Rome, to the saints at Galatia. And he wasn't trying to butter them up with false, false compliments. He really meant it. He meant to the holy ones who there are in those churches, I write to you. He didn't say to the lousy, sinning Christians, Christians saved by grace. Why is this important? Because, as it says in Proverbs, as a man thinks, so he is. 
If, you're th if you think your primary identity is that of a sinner, guess what you're going to act on and how you're going to live. But if you think you are primarily a saint, you will tend to live that way. I am Saint Woody. You can call me Holy One if you don't like that. We can defeat sin because we know it is not our deepest identity or nature. We will not ever be perfect. We will not ever be complete in this life. But that doesn't mean we aren't different, radically different. Not because we try harder, but because God changed us at the moment of salvation. What Jesus really calls us to when he calls us to holiness is to conform to what we already are. Hallelujah. Because holiness is not trying to be something we're not. It's the expression of what Jesus did in us and what we are. My spirit, like my body will be one day, has been resurrected from the dead to new life. So be who you are. Get in touch with your deepest self. That's why Paul tells us that our minds must be renewed. Why? So that our minds and new spirit can actually work together. We have to reprogram our heads to match our spirits. We're so used to living in the flesh. We cave into it all the time. You know, we go, oh, I'm angry. I can't help my... That, I've got a bad temper. That's just who I am. That's caving to the flesh. Or, you know, I, 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 you know we cave to our egos. We cave to our addictions. We cave to our lusts. We are so used to being hypersensitive to our own flesh. Thank you, Philip. <laughs> we have to train our minds to new realities. We obey Christ, not in order to be saved, but because we are already saved and our new nature now is to love God. The deepest part of you loves God. We now, when we get in touch with our new nature, we want to serve human need. We want to because now we have been given the heart of Christ. We want to give generously. We want to forgive. We want to bless others as a way of life because that's who and what we really are. We're not faking it. We're not forcing it. And the third aspect of being born again is that our new nature enables us to live life in the Spirit. Because of our new natures, we can now interact with the Holy Spirit who lives in us before you couldn't. You couldn't feel God. You couldn't interact with Him. Now we can feel Christ and experience His love firsthand. Before, that was impossible. We can now have Christ's love saturate our souls. Before, that we would have never even known it. We now can feel His power and anointing when we use our gifts. His thoughts can become our thoughts. The truth about Jesus now can become the reality of walking with Jesus we can be guided because we are directly in touch with the Spirit of God. Before, our spirits were simply incapable of interacting with the Holy Spirit. It simply wasn't going to happen. Larry Crabb said that uh, uh, in a book by, by Eric Metaxas, he's a, Larry Crabb is a well-known author and uh, writer and, and, and a psychologist. And he has a son, Ken, who 18 years ago went through a very painful divorce. Ken met his wife in college. They seemed to have a dream marriage. And then suddenly it started to fall apart. 
Things did not improve no matter what they tried, and in the end, in December of 1998, the divorce went through, and Ken was simply beside himself with grief. He felt like his life had been shattered. Sometime during this terrible period, Ken got hold of a gun, and for one night, he had a gun in his hand for considering blowing his brains out. Finally, he decided not to follow through. But still the pain continued. Every night for four or five months when he went to bed, Ken told God he didn't want to be alive and that he wanted God to take his life. Aren't you glad Jesus doesn't answer every prayer? None of us would be here. <laughs> a few months later, he passed beyond his suicidal period, but he was very angry with God. Whatever relationship he had had with God was long gone. There was a tremendous dryness in the heart of his soul. Whatever love and passion he had once for God were now memories. He knew that he was only going through the motions when he went to church, trying to move forward, but really not feeling anything much at all. He just felt empty. That fall, he decided he needed to get away. And so he went to Bali in Indonesia. But before he left, Larry, his father, told him that he could count on him and his mother praying for him every day. On the seventh day of the trip to Bali, Ken decided he had to try something different. For the first six days, all he did was surf and veg and eat and drink and watch TV. So one morning he got up, wearing his swim trunks and carrying nothing, and he walked the beach, determined somehow to get serious with God. Sure enough, for the first time as he walked the beach that day, he felt a noticeable desire for the first time in months and months to communicate with God. But he wasn't sure what to communicate with God. And as he walked, he found himself not praying, but singing. For some reason, his deepest desire was to sing to God as he walked the beach. After so many months of feeling nothing like this, it was a great turning point. And for two hours or so, he walked the beach, communicating with God in this joyful way, singing his heart out. It stunned him. Meanwhile, his father was back in Colorado and driving to Colorado Springs from Denver one afternoon. And he decided he, while on this drive, he should spend the next 90 minutes praying for his son. Even now, he said, I wasn't really pleased with how cavalierly I was approaching this heavy subject. I was listening to music and messing with the radio and throwing up an occasional prayer. But he said at some point during the drive, he realized that the seriousness of his son's situation merited more than just token prayers. So he turned off the radio and passionately asked God to help him find one thing inside himself that he could pray with power for and with deep conviction he asked himself, what's really inside me and alive in me that I desperately want to pray, that I want to bring to God? And as he continued to drive, he suddenly found that he wanted to sing. It was a compulsion, really. So he began to sing. The first song was, Great is Thy Faithfulness. Larry knew all the verses and he sang them. As he sang them, he began to weep. He wept because as he meditated on God's faithfulness to him over the years, he now prayed desperately that for his son, that Ken might sing this song and know God's faithfulness too, might know in his bones that despite everything that happened, despite all the pain, God was faithful and would always be faithful to him. Great is thy faithfulness. And then he sang 
in the car that day, I love you, Lord. That was the second one. And I lift my voice to worship you. Oh, my soul rejoice. Larry continued to weep as he sang this second song. And he continued to passionately pray that his son would be able to feel what this song communicated. An overwhelming love for the God who loved him. And then he finished his singing by singing, It is well with my soul. When sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Finally, Larry Crabb pulled back onto the road and continued to weep and pray as he drove to Colorado Springs. He prayed every day for his son. Two weeks later, after Ken returned from Bali to to Cleveland, he flew to Denver on business, and he and his father hooked up for lunch. How did your trip go to Bali? Ken told his father everything, but of course the whole story culminated with the walk he took on his seventh day in Bali when he decided to let go of surfing and pray. He told his father that for no particular reason he he could discern, he suddenly felt the connection to God that he'd been looking for. How so? his father asked. Ken told him he was walking along the beach when he suddenly felt a real compulsion to sing, that his desire to connect with God had manifested itself in his singing as he walked along the beach. Larry suddenly looked at his son in an intense way. Do you remember what day that was? His son told him. It was the seventh day that he was in Bali. Larry did some calculations in his head and his eyes opened wide. This had happened to both of them on the very same day. To Larry, it seemed a miracle, but he didn't volunteer anything at that point. He said to his son, Ken, do you remember the songs you sang? Ken did. And his father, he told his father that he said, sang, the first song I sang was, Great is Thy Faithfulness. You did, Larry said. What else? Ken told him that there were two other songs he sang for that two hours. One was, I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice to worship you. Oh, my soul rejoice. And the final song was, It is well with my soul. Larry could hardly believe his ears. In that moment, he told his son what he had experienced on that very same day and how he had experienced a compulsion to sing and had sung precisely the same three songs. Ken could hardly take in what his father was saying. On the very same day, 9,000 miles apart, they had both, unbeknownst to each other, began seeking to connect with God at a deeper level, and both of them had suddenly found themselves doing so by singing, and not just singing, but singing the very same three songs. Kenny asked what time this was when when his father broke into song, and after they calculated it, they realized they were both singing the same three songs at exactly the the same time. For seven days in Bali, Ken didn't have the courage to really think about anything. He watched TV and surfed. But on the seventh day, as he walked the beach, for nearly three hours, he sang those three songs, the same songs his father was singing on the edge of a highway in Colorado, half a world away, exactly at the same time. After they sat there and, and took in what happened, both of them started to weep and hugged each other before the lunch was over. My brothers and sisters, that is life in the Spirit. Those kind of things can happen to you if you are born again. They cannot happen to you if you're not born again. They happen to you if you're hopelessly in love with the Christ who saved you and saves you still. 
This is what can happen to new people with new natures who listen to the Holy Spirit interacting with their resurrected spirits. This is the new reality. Born of water and spirit, Jesus talked about to a man named Nicodemus 2,000 years ago. The same offer, by the way, is on the table. The same realities are open to us. Born again is not some cliché. It is not some trite little formula. It is not just a ticket to heaven. It is an invitation to a whole new world with whole new possibilities. This week, I was having some rough spots this week. And last night I prayed a prayer in the middle of the night. I was very specific about the prayer. I'm not going to tell you what it was. But I went into the prayer room this morning and Keith and Denise Chase were, were praying. And Keith started first, and almost verbatim, Keith prayed the prayer for me that I prayed last night in the middle of the night alone. And it was God's way of saying, I heard your prayer, and I put it in Keith, and he echoed it back to you. That's the kind of stuff that happens in the Spirit. This past week, Jesse is, Jesse is, is my youngest son is in dental hygiene school. 97% of everybody in dental hygiene school are women. His entire class are women except for Jesse. Please pray for him as he breaks the glass ceiling that has kept so many men out of being a dental hygienist. I prayed specifically for, G for, for Jesse this week. And last night he came in. I hadn't seen him all week. I said, how did your week go? And he said, well, it's hard and stuff. Jesse, you know, they throw everything but the book at you, including the book at you. You know, they're trying to cull the herd in dental hygiene school and so they can whittle it down. And, and, you know, this is not Jesse's strength necessarily. And Jesse was feeling in over his head. And I prayed this past week. I felt led to pray by the Spirit. I said, Lord, in the clinical part of this, Help Jesse do well. Help him do well. And when I asked him, he didn't know I prayed this and everything. When I asked him last night, how, how was it going? Well, it's hard, and he's still got so much work, and it feels overwhelming. And, I, and he said, but I had one neat moment this week, Dad. And I said, what was that? And he said, when I was practicing clinical work, he said, suddenly I knew what to do. He said, I knew where to stand. I knew what to say. I knew what the instruments were. I knew how to hand them to the dentist. He said it was so cool. It surprised him. He said, Dad, it's really cool. And I was thinking to myself, you don't know how cool it really is. Jesus got you through that. And I told him about it. This is what happens with new natures. When you have a new nature, you can interact with the movements of the Spirit. And when you interact with the movements of the Spirit, all kinds of stuff like this can happen to you. You can walk in the Spirit. You can know God's voice. You can be a new creature. Shazam! <laughs> Hallelujah! Woo! That was my Ric Flair. Anyway... <laughs> Once again, if, don't bother to understand it. The, uh, so anyway, I, I would like whoever's going to lead the last song to get ready. And uh, you can come on up, Randy. And I'd like the intercessors to come forward. But before we sing or say anything, 
I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes, and I want you to claim who you are in Christ. I want you to, to pray that you can get in touch with the deepest recesses of who you are and realize that God has made something new out of your spirit. I want you to pray that with this new nature and this new spirit, you will walk with the spirit. That you will accept the invitation to a whole new world with whole new possibilities. Lord Jesus, help us to be who and what we are. Help us to believe the incredible truths of your word about us. Let we who are born again live like we are born again. Help us, Lord, to grasp the incredible gift you have given us not just of yourself and of your salvation, but of a new nature itself so that we can know you and walk with you and hear from you. Help us, Jesus, to not sell short in ourselves what you have done in us. Help us to claim this radical truth in Jesus' name. Amen. If the intercessors will come and Randy, you come and come forward to the mic and, and we'll pray for you about anything. It's, it's 1230. The service is now over. You can go. If you want to stay and pray or be prayed for or quietly worship God where you are, you may do so. But will you stand, please?